so hi, my name is Brian Johnson. I am the pastor of Haymarket Church. Haymarket Church is a United Methodist Church plant in Haymarket, uh, Virginia. <laughs> I always have to say that. Oh, wait, we're in Haymarket. Um, uh, we worship in an elementary school, so high school is like fancy. Um, so really excited to be here this morning. Um, as Deborah mentioned, Matt and I are uh, good friends. Um, we've known each other since high school. We did not like each other in high school. Um, we both had a crush on the same girl, and you know uh, how, how these things go. Um, she had had no interest in either of us, so it worked out. Um, so, but Matt is probably one of my best friends in the world. Uh, I am lucky enough to be. Godfather, only it's not a godfather to Evan, because you have to be like Christian witness, because uh, Evan's Catholic, you know, all that stuff. Um, but um, but uh, Matt's the youngest son, Evan, and uh, his oldest son, Patrick, is the same age as my youngest son, Ezekiel, so we spend many Fridays when they're both not in school going and having fun together and claiming that it's letting the children play. Um, so, so Matt is a dear friend of mine. Uh, he's one of the most loyal friends I've ever had. He speaks highly of y'all. Um, and we were planning this sermon series together back uh, in the spring, I guess. Uh, and we said, hey, like we're planning it together. What if we each like preach at each other's church? We get the bonus of writing one fewer sermon during the summer. Um, and our churches get the bonus. They might be tired of us, and they get to hear someone else preach. So, um, so I'm here. I don't know if you all are tired of Matt. I can tell you that my church is tired of me. So, uh, so anyway, so I'm here, and I'm happy to be with you all. Uh, and with that, let's pray. God of grace and mercy, God of hope, God of patience and power, be powerfully present with us this morning. Send your Holy Spirit, move among us, speak to us through scripture and sermon so that we might encounter you and be ready to go out and serve you. Amen. First scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 4. Listen now for these ancient words of truth. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but they held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There were no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, that is, one who encourages, or son of encouragement, was a Levite from Cyprus. He owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. And then our second scripture reading comes right after that one. Uh, it starts with the very next verse, the start of chapter 5. Listen now for these words of life. However, a man named Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he withheld some of the proceeds from the sale. He brought the rest and placed it in the care and under the authority of the apostles. Peter asked Ananias, How is it that Satan has influenced you to lie to the Holy Spirit by withholding some of the proceeds from the sale of your land? Wasn't that property yours to keep? After you sold it, wasn't the money, to do, money yours to do with whatever you wanted? What made you think of such a thing? Well, you haven't lied to other people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead. Everyone who heard this conversation was terrified. Some young men stood up, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife entered, but she didn't know what had happened to her husband. Peter asked her, tell me, did your husband receive this price for the field? 
She responded, yes, that's the amount. Peter replied, how could you scheme with each other to challenge the Lord's spirit? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out too. At that very moment, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men entered and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her with her husband. Trepidation and dread seized the whole church and all who heard what had happened. Amen. So that story is weird, right? The second story that we just read, right? The one about Ananias and Sapphira, the one where they withhold some money from the church and then they die. What do we do with that story? It's a tough one to handle, right? It's one of the reasons that when we at Haymarket Church did our sermon series on Acts a few months back, uh, I kind of skipped this part of the story. Um, I didn't really mention it in my preaching or in my teaching because after all, what do you do with it? At best, it's bizarre, and at worst, it is downright troubling, even scary. The story goes like this. It's the early church in those first months after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost has happened, and the church has experienced explosive growth, going from a few dozen to a few thousand. And the church is trying to handle all of that, to figure out how to care for each other, to create systems that allow them to put God's love into action in this rapidly changing community. They're trying to reach new people, to care for the people who they've already reached. They are, for the first time in their history, trying to figure out this Jesus thing and what it means for how they live their lives together. There's no example to follow. They don't have a New Testament because, of course, they wrote the New Testament. At this stage, everything for them is new and uncharted. So far in the book of Acts, in the first four chapters, we've seen the church in what we might call an idealized presentation. Sure, there are struggles, there are arrests, there's stuff that's even worse than just arrests, but all the people in the church seem to be unified. They all seem to be working together. It seems at this point to be holding hands and singing kumbaya and working together for a shared cause. But then chapter 5 happens and things get real. And they get real real quick. At this point, we're told that everyone in the church, everyone in this community, holds all their property in common. They sell what they have, they give the proceeds to the apostles to provide food for the hungry, and, and they work together and they live together and they share everything about their lives. So Ananias and Sapphira do the same. Right? They do the same, except they don't. Right? They sell a field and they give the proceeds to the apostles. Except they don't give all the proceeds. They hold a little bit back. And what's worse, according to the story, is that they lie about it. So, so say they sell the field for $100, right? They sell the field for $100, and then they give the apostles like 80 And they say, we got $80 for the field, and they keep 20 for themselves. But that's when it goes bad. Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple who have conspired to lie to the leaders of this fledgling church, they separately tell their lies to Peter, and in each case, Peter reveals that he knows the truth. It's like an interrogation scene in a police drama, right? right? The suspects are split up, and they're told, we know what you did, now come clean, turn on your partner, maybe you'll get a lighter sentence. But they don't come clean, and here's the kicker, they drop dead. Right? Yeah, that's right, the death sentence. The church doesn't have to worry about punishing them or excommunicating them, right? They just die. Which is, you know, kind of intense. Right? What would happen if every time one of us lied, we died? 
For one thing, there wouldn't be many of us left, right? What would happen if each time we held our money back from an important cause, we dropped dead? Well, on the one hand, nonprofit fundraising might be a lot easier. Um, or maybe we'd just all be dead. I mean, I think we'd probably just all be dead. I'd be dead, right? Um, the story that comes right before this one, that first one that we read, the story of Joseph, the one who is also called Barnabas, his story is important context for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Because Joseph, Barnabas, has done this same thing. He sold a field, and he gave the proceeds to the apostles for the use of the church. The difference, of course, is that he doesn't lie about it. Instead, he really did give everything he had away. He gave it all away, and now he's a hero because of it. It seems that he gets his nickname, Barnabas, which means literally son of encouragement. He gets his nickname because of generous acts like this one. He's lifted up as this model to emulate because of his radical generosity. Listen, financial generosity matters in the life of a church. It costs money to run a church in our world. It takes money to feed the hungry, to support the people who lead the church, to pay for what's needed to make church happen, to pay for tires on a van I heard about just now, right? When you give to your church, you enable your church to pay for staff and rent and teaching children and doing good work in the community and much more. And Barnabas gave with this radical generosity giving away his land to help the church exist and thrive. That money was used to feed widows and care for the destitute. So, of course, he's celebrated. He's a hero. And so I wonder, did Ananias and Sapphira tell this lie? Did they cook up this story because they wanted to get the same hero's treatment that Barnabas did? They wanted their own special nicknames. Were they jealous? Were they trying to become heroes of faith without having to put in all the work, take the risk that comes along with that? I wonder, how often does it come back to bite us when we take shortcuts? When we try to get the reward without putting in the effort? Cheating on tests in school, right? My first like year or two of French, I don't think I learned any French. I did learn how to get a C in French. Um, but that's different, right? And then I regretted it later because I hadn't put in the work. Cheating on tests in school, rushing through our work, taking credit for what other people have done. How often do we do the same kinds of things? There's a really important difference that's worth noting, I think, between having a role model and acting out of jealousy. Looking up to a role model is about emulating their behavior, learning to live like them. Whereas acting out of jealousy is about trying to get what someone else has. Jealousy is about focusing on the reward, right? Jealousy is about focusing on the reward, the outcome, rather than the process that gets there. Ananias and Sapphira act out of jealousy and it kills them. What about you in your life? Do you have role models? Do you have mentors? People whose lives are examples for you? Or are you just living out of jealousy? Trying to get what other people have without putting in the work that it takes to get it. Are you willing to live as someone else lives? Or do you just want what they've got? To use a sports analogy, are you willing to practice and work as hard as LeBron James? Or do you just want to be as good at basketball as LeBron James? Because if you don't put in the work, you're never going to play like LeBron. Also, none of you are six foot eight and 250 pounds, so none of you are ever going to be LeBron anyway, right? That's not the point. The point is that when we try to get what someone else has without putting in the work that they do to get there. I was watching a press conference with Tiger Woods who talked about how he would 
you know, in his prime, he would hit practice balls for four hours and then play 36 holes and then run for like five miles and then go to the gym, right? Like he was great because he spent his whole life working to be great. Are you willing to do that kind of stuff or do you just want the end result? Because when we're just trying to get the end result without putting in the work, when we're just living out of jealousy, it will inevitably and eventually destroy us. It's also worth mentioning that Ananias and Sapphira weren't required to give all their money to the apostles, right? They aren't actually in trouble for holding the money back, right? I, I think the story might have been very different if they had said, we sold the field for $100, here's 80 we need the 20 for something else, right? Um, they're in trouble for lying about what happened. The lie is the thing that can't be tolerated. When Peter confronts the lie, it leads to death for this couple. But not confronting the lie, allowing lies to fester, allowing scheming and deceit to go unchallenged, that would have led to death for the church. I have been part of churches in the past, not presently, but I've been part of churches that struggled and suffered because no one was willing to speak an uncomfortable truth. There were no, willing, not, no one was willing to say that this leading figure is a bully or to say that the church had to change if it wanted to reach new people. If the church doesn't speak the truth, it's already on its way to the grave. So here's the thing. This passage is weird, right? Let's own that. It's hard. It's always going to be hard. There's no easy answer for why did these people drop dead or why is this crazy thing in the Bible or how am I supposed to feel about all of this, right? Like, I have weird, like I'm not super excited that like these people drop dead. Like, it doesn't make my life better um, to have to preach on that story, right? I don't know. I can tell you this story makes me uncomfortable. That's the truth. But despite that, this story has something really important to tell us, and it's this. Don't hold back your best from the things that matter to you. Because if you do, it will kill you. Hear me again. Holding back your best will kill you. Maybe not literally, but spiritually, emotionally, at a deep level that really matters. Holding ourselves back from the communities that matter to us leads to a kind of death for those communities and for us. You see, joining a group comes with certain expectations, right? You're going to participate in it. You're going to support it. You're going to invest in it. And if we don't go all in on the groups that we join, we won't experience the joys that come with being part of that group, right? If you're part of a kickball team, Right? Adult kickball leagues are a thing now, right? If you're a part of an adult kickball team and you, you don't go to practice and you don't go to the games, right? If, if you don't do those things, you won't fully enjoy being on the team. In fact, it's like you're not even on the team at all if you don't go to the practices or the games. If you want to get something out of something, you have to participate in it. You have to put something into it. And that should be obvious enough, but the same is true only more so for church. If we want to get something that matters out of church, if we want to experience something that has the potential to impact our lives, then we need to be willing to give something to church. We need to be willing to give of ourselves to the church. But that's scary. Right? It's threatening. Going all in on a community, particularly an authentic community, something that's deep and meaningful, going all, is, all in is scary because it always costs us something. If we want to go all in on our family, on our community, on our church, it will cost us time, it will cost us energy, it will cost us money. 
Any one of those things you go all in on, it's going to cost you something. It's going to force us to be vulnerable. Those of you who are in a small group, I know you all are really passionate about small groups here at Spirit and Life. If you're in a small group, you know this. Honestly, if you're in any serious relationship, a romantic relationship, or a relationship with a parent, or a child, or a friend, right? If you're in a serious relationship, you know this. Authentic community, meaningful relationship is hard work, and it is risky. Authentic community, relationships that are where you're really known by someone else. It's dangerous, because if people know your stuff, they can hurt you with your stuff. Right? Why are the, our closest loved ones the ones who can jab the knife in just the right spot? Because they know us so well. There's a risk to knowing people so well. If you share your real self, your whole self with someone else, they can reject you. They can betray you. And that can be devastating. So it's scary to do that. So we hold back a lot of the time because we're afraid that we might get hurt because we want to cover all our bases and mitigate our risk. But the problem is that the alternative is worse. The alternative, never going all in on anything, that's living out, missing out on half a, it's living half a life. It's living half a life and missing out on so much of the goodness and joy that's available in this world, right? The quote that ships in harbor are safe, but that's not what they're built for, right? You can stay safe, but that, then you're not going to live. To put it in the terms of this story, to, to hold back like that is to live a kind of living death. Relationships, ones that matter, they take work. They take an investment of time and energy, and sometimes they take hard conversations and wrestling to find a way forward. What if you refuse to invest the time and the energy because it might not work out, and then all that time and energy, you were afraid that all that time and energy would be wasted if it didn't work out, right? What if, to take a very extreme example, what if because you were afraid your marriage might not work out, you had an affair, so that you'd have a relationship to fall back on just in case the marriage didn't work out, right? Yeah, right. Do you, do you think that maybe having an affair is not a good backup plan, right? Uh, let me give you the answer just in case anyone's unclear right now. We're going to be very clear this. That's not a good idea. Please don't do that. Don't ever say that I said to do that. It's a bad idea. It's a good way, in fact, to destroy your marriage. The backup plan ends up destroying plan A. It's an extreme example again, but I hope that it makes my point. When we hold ourselves back from the things that matter, it doesn't actually keep us safe. It actually destroys us. It ensures that we end up doing harm to ourselves and to the things that are important to us. Sometimes trying to hold back and cover all our bases means that we don't do anything well. Right? We try to do a thousand things and we can't do any one of them with any excellence. So going all in is again the only way to truly live. God challenges us to go all in on the things that matter, on the beautiful gifts that God has given us. And very often, we don't. We don't go all in for the same reasons that Ananias and Sapphira didn't go all in. We're afraid. We're afraid that God won't provide. Right? We're afraid that this community will fail. We've given so much, if they had given everything they had to the church and the church had failed, where would they be then? Right? We're afraid that if we risk it all, if we give our whole selves to this thing, that it will hurt too much if something goes wrong. And so we hold a little bit of ourselves back, just to play it safe. My question for you today is this. What are you holding back? What is the gap between who God calls you to be and how you're actually living? Where do you need to invest more of yourself, more of your money, more of your time, more of your energy, more of your prayer, more of your love, more of your work? 
Where do you need to invest more of yourself in order to get what you really want out of life? What is keeping you from going all in? Truly all in on the things that matter to you. Maybe it's because you're over busy, right? Your calendar is so full, you're doing a thousand different things, so you don't have time or energy to fully commit to any of them. And so you do all of them halfway, or you do all of them full speed, but then you don't have the energy to invest in your family, or to invest in taking care of yourself. Or maybe you're afraid, you're afraid that the thing you care about might fail, and so you're spreading your resources, your energy around so that it doesn't hurt too much when the thing that you love doesn't make it. Let me tell you this again, that way of living will kill you. That way of living will kill your faith. This story, whatever else it is, is a reminder that the only way to live for Jesus is to live all the way for Jesus. The only way to truly benefit from being part of a church, or at least benefit as God wants you to benefit, the only way to benefit from this faith lived in community is not just to dip your toe in the water, but it's to dive straight into the deep end, even if you're not sure that you know how to swim. Ananias and Sapphira were afraid that if they gave all their money away, they'd have nothing, and so they held some back, but they had it backwards. If they'd given it all away, if they had trusted in what God was doing, they would have had a whole community of people to support them. They would have had a whole group of faithful people who were also all in cheering them on. Instead, they gave in to fear and it killed them. My challenge for you is simple. Don't, don't give in to fear. Don't look back in 10 years and wonder what might have been. Go all in, not because it will make God love you more. God loves you unimaginably big. God loves you more than you can ever possibly imagine, and nothing you can do can change how much God loves you. So don't go all in to earn God's love. That won't work. Go all in because it will make your life better right now. Go all in and find the life that Jesus is inviting you to live. The only life that's truly worth living. Let's pray.